So this is my second podcast on the Mighty Dragon, and I'm speaking to, should I call you Bootsy or should I call you Owen? It doesn't matter one bit. The reason why I go by Bootsy Greenwood, and and a quick Google search will show you why, Owen Hunt is the name of a very famous uh, fictional character from a show called Grey's Anatomy here in the States. So, you know, if you want to hide a dead body, just second page of the Google search, (laughs) you just find... And so that's why I go by Bootsy Greenwood on social media and stuff, which is really just my stripper name. Oh. You know, so that the first uh, pet you ever had and then the street you grew up on is your stripper name. Right. And so it had a good ring to it. So I was like, well, I'll just go with that. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. Right. Okay. I see. Um, and I met you on your YouTube channel where you talk about something completely different. But I noticed that you reference your comedy writing a few times. And I thought I would reach out to talk to you for The Mighty Dragon, as I think that it's very hard to to get interviews with radio writers specifically and stand up. So thank you for agreeing for this interview. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Vicky. That's okay. Right. If we make a start on the questions, and I wanted to ask you, first of all, have you always wanted to work in comedy, uh, writing and performing? Well, um, no, I always wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. So uh, comedy is something that has been a long time coming for me, and it's something that I've really not been able to escape in a lot of ways. Even through music, uh, I would wind up performing funny songs and working with bands that were kind of in the comedy avenue. But I tried and tried and tried to fight against, you know, what we call transferring the flow of variations. And I just got done talking to Renee about this. But, you know, it's, it's funny how how stubborn we can be. We have a lot of willpower and sort of shirk, you know, the, the, the direction that the universe is kind of like lit up for us in a way. And so that's kind of been, you know, up until the past couple of years, my attitude is like, no, I want to be taken seriously as an artist and I'm going to be a musician. And, you know, just a couple of years ago, uh, I was working with a band and our drummer had a baby and, you know, and that's great and all. And and that just kind of developed. And I've I've worked as a producer in comedy for quite a few years. I've actually worked um, with some pretty big names in comedy. So I could talk a little bit about that if you like. Yeah. But I just kind of I'm pretty new to performing, but we started a podcast last year uh, that kind of combined elements of music as well as comedy. And it's it's sort of split up, you know, so that it's kind of like as if you were listening to the radio and the dial changes, you know, just kind of randomly and it'll go into a sketch and then you'll be listening to a sketch for a while. And then the dial will change as if some magic hand somewhere else is changing the dial. And then it will go into some stand up comedy and then it will go into music, etc. And so we try to highlight particular band and a particular stand-up comic for each episode and then write sketch, you know, fake commercials and stuff like that around those little bits. So it's kind of a fun, involved podcast. The production aspect wound up being a lot more overwhelming than we (laughs) expected. But it was a really great way to boost everyone's creative output, as well as just allow ourselves to be silly and really opened us up a lot. And so I started doing improv and started doing stand-up as a result, which is something that, you know, since I was a child, people have told me I should do. Okay. Yeah. So you were always a performer. Yeah, I've been a performer for a long time, which is good. And then I got into production in 2004, and I've been producing music as well as television and film, music videos, etc., 
yeah. uh, since then. So I have a lot of experience behind the camera and I'm still kind of new to being in front of it. Yeah. Uh, as well as, you know, performing on stage and stuff like that. I'm still learning a lot and I haven't released any stand up, but there is quite a bit of stuff that we put together on the, the podcast channel. So that's a, it's called Behind the Dial is the name of it. And you can find that at behindthedialpodcast.com. Okay. That with your YouTube channel, your Bootsy Greenwood one that I watched, I was quite surprised when you just first started putting your content out in front of the camera because you'd always narrated in a way, hadn't you? Yeah, it's not something that I honestly wanted to do. I didn't want to be in front of a camera, but I just felt that it's just the same way. It's like I felt like I should share this book because the Reality Transurfing book, I think, is very special. Uh, yeah. It summed up a lot of ideas that I had previously really weren't connected. And when I read Reality Transurfing, it, it changed my life. And I finally was like, you know what? This is going to be like my sort of Bible for lack of a better way to put it. And so I decided that I would read it and share it because there was only this like robotic sort of voice reading it on YouTube at the time that was really kind of antagonistic to me and annoying. So yeah. I was like, well, I'm just going to read this. And so, you know, that actually has led to a, a great windfall. Uh, a lot of people are really getting a lot out of it, which is yeah. you know, very touching and humbling from my perspective. And now I'm, I'm able to work with uh, Renee, who is uh, the certified trainer of North America, Reality Transurfing, and several other people in a collective format, just putting out more and more of this information because it's so helpful. I think, too, the way you've presented it is really good. You know, it's broken down quite a tough subject into easy chapters and actually spoke in layman's terms how, you know, what he meant. Vadim Zeeland is the, the writer of the book. Um, and I think you've presented that very well. <clears throat> Well, thank you very much. Very much a layman. So that's, I have no other way to present it other than to be like, hey, here's about as smart as I am. And I'm trying to encapsulate those ideas in the simplest form possible and just share them with folks because they've helped me tremendously. Yeah. So um, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And it's been, it's been a bit of a trip. Yeah. to get in front of the camera. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. It's just as you become very self-conscious and doing stand-up especially. Like, I, I cringe constantly. Most people, if they were, even record their voice, and when you start doing that, you're just like, ugh, oh. I hate my own voice. And Same then, you, yeah. Yeah, multiply that by 10, and that's what it's like to be in front of the camera. Okay. Oh, I, I don't think I'll ever imagine that, to be honest. I, I quite like <laughs> the to be behind it. Good luck to you, you know, with your success of that channel. It's doing really well. Um, talking about um, writing partners, even with your transurfing stuff and also with your comedy writing, do you prefer to write alone or do you like to bounce ideas off of other people and collaborate better as a team? I like to collaborate and it might be even to a fault. But when I'm writing stand-up, it has to be personal. It has to be something that I believe in, something that's true for me, something that's that's genuine, that I'm genuinely sharing. And I have no problem sticking to that. Sometimes I forget my punchlines when I'm on stage and I'm just like driving this point home and it's like, oh, I had 10 jokes that I left out, <laughs> um, which is kind of a funny, which is kind of a funny <laughs> issue to have as a stand-up. But I do yeah. run that stuff by my friends. I have a couple of different writing partners and okay. we basically just help each other sort of punch up, right? So like if, if my friend Jake, for instance, uh, Jake Ward, 
uh, has some ideas. Like we had pancakes last night at IHOP and he's performing tonight. He was running some ideas by me and then, you know, I was like, what, what about that? You know, he's like, I'm thinking about doing this joke. And I was like, Oh, it'd be funny if because he's talking about like, you know, these, there's a lot of really interesting things going on politically right now, but he was talking of, uh, about uh, some of these folks who are getting in trouble right now and how funny it was, like they're clean shaven and he has a mustache. And so like, he's like fighting this idea of like, you know, creeps with mustaches and now it's the opposite and yeah. he just got a van or whatever. And I was like, and that's why we have to storm area 51 to find these people. Right. And he's like, well, can I use that? and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Please use that. Uh, because yeah. It's based on his premise. So basically the way I think of it is this, if, if, if I had a punch to someone else's premise, that's their punch. And if someone else adds a punch to my premise, then that's my punch. And that's how I write with, um, so Kelly Patronus is also another comedian that I work with uh, pretty closely. Jeff Fox is uh, more of a musician, but also just an incredible writer and, and kind, beautiful soul who is uh, one of my closest friends who I also write with. And, and so very fortunate to have a lot of people around me, Andrew Steck as well, who's a, a very talented musician. Yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna plug all my friends. Why not? Go them. for I it. I love them to death. And Ben Roberts as well. We do improv as well. So I do improv. Uh, as well, twice a week, just to kind of keep my chops up. A lot of these folks, Christine Williams as well, is involved, and Kelsey Cater also are in part of this improv group that we kind of just formed about a month or two ago. And so that's something that has been really helpful for me and fun. I get a lot more out of doing improv. Okay. Um, I do stand up, to be honest. Like, yeah. no matter, even if I have a good set doing stand up, I'm like still unsatisfied. Whereas even if I have a bad night at improv, I feel invigorated. I don't know if that makes sense. That's so interesting. Yeah, they're really paradoxically complete opposites. You know, like uh, in improv, for instance, you surrender to the scene, to the energy. You, you, you become whatever character that scene needs and you just let go of your ego. Whereas in stand-up, you have to create all of the energy and project it at the audience. There's also no fourth wall when it comes to stand-up. You have to acknowledge the audience and they're staring at you, all of yeah. them, oh, like, almost gosh. like daring you to make them laugh. And whereas improv, I think they're a little bit more forgiving and uh, a little bit more open. And if you fail, then they're not going to heckle you. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I th- as well, just as a side question off of this, with stand-up and you have a set, uh, you've got all your jokes in your head that, or what topic you're going to talk about and you've got your jokes and do you then um, get to a point where you're saying jokes again? So I just where I, and how do you still keep that funny or engage sure. with the audience? Because I I thought that I, I saw a comedian recently, and I was like, Jesus, he had all those jokes from last time I saw him. What well, about half of them? I was like, really? You know, how do you still? <laughs> you know, or is that just lazy? You know, where, no, where you know. No. It's, so there are a couple of different philosophies when it comes to stand-up. One, which is a little bit more old school, is you need a tight five. You need five minutes that absolutely crush. And when you get invited to Johnny Carson's show, then you go on Johnny Carson's show and you kill. And then all, you're an overnight sensation. Now you're immediately famous and you can do basically whatever you want. Right. Okay. Well, that's the old school way. Uh, late night shows are not yeah. popular anymore. Yeah. So the world's changing. I almost to a fault don't do the same material, but a lot of comedians do have to have material. And so that's a misconception that I had. And I didn't know that until last year. So I have a friend named Carlos Valencia. He's a very funny comedian. Uh, He lives in Charlotte. 
And he's opened up for like Doug Stanhope and Tom Segura and a lot of big names. And he's just the funniest guy all the time. He can't turn it off. He's just always funny. And he still writes material. But then I have another friend uh, named Jason Webb who works out at the comedy store in L.A. who's hilarious as well, but who's like a very much like me type person. Like He's interested in futurism and self-help books and stuff like that. And he just goes on stage and kills for an hour and a half and then comes off stage and is like the sweetest, most humble gentleman. So, you know, there's a lot of different types of personalities that do stand-up comedy. And oftentimes the funniest people don't make the best stand-ups, oddly Really? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of comics out there that just don't even have a sense of humor. They just mathematically understand how humor works. On screen. So say like they would know how it works on screen. And then... Exactly. uh, Right, okay. So I thought, oh, comics just... When I met Carlos, I was like, oh, God, well, I could never be a stand-up comic because this guy, I mean, he just hammers away. He's just always funny, you know, like we're hanging out and he's just constantly making jokes and you never know whether to take them seriously or not. And then I met Jason in last July and I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, you don't have to all the time be funny. And that's when I was like, (laughs) okay. Yeah, so for my 36th birthday, which was... Last year, a year ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to try my hand at stand up. And so I uh, reached out to Sean at God Kindy. Uh, I have a hard time pronouncing his name, but uh, he's a funny uh, Atlanta comic. Uh, he works at Laughing Skull a lot. And he was like, hey, I'm, I'm full for your birthday date, but I've got a spot for you next month if you want to do that on August 18th. So that was the first time I ever did stand up, which was good because I needed the month to write a set. So I wrote a set and performed it and it went okay. And ever since then, I've just been doing it as often as possible. It is quite the grind to do stand up. And they say, you know, and this is all conventional uh, sort of stand up wisdom, but they say, you know, do a thousand open mics and then you'll be sort of comfortable on stage and ready. So a thousand. That's, you know, that, that it doesn't have to be that much and a lot. depending on your background, but, and these open mics are just horrible. I mean, you go to these rooms with like six to 10 people who are just all comics who are just sitting there rooting against you. And you go up on stage and you try to, and you try to recite your jokes like you're talking about, right? Like whatever it is that you've written that you're trying to convey. And a lot of the work that's done behind the scenes is just like constant writing, constant refining, working this joke out so that it works. And sometimes you can see a comic who has almost like over uh, rehearsed and it's really obvious and it looks like they're acting okay well, it's, it is acting but it's supposed to look like the first time they've ever told the story do you know that is so complex and so difficult yeah it's it's nothing like what i thought it was so like a lot of people are like oh i want to do stand up and all that and i'm like absolutely go for it you should but don't expect it to be like what you think it is because it's not it's it's so much work and it's so dishonest. If you read a book uh, uh, called Truth in Comedy by, um, oh my gosh, now I've forgotten the author's name. It's about improv. It's, it's, it's like one of the guys at Second City who created what's known as the Herald. And he worked with, you know, John Belushi and Chris Farley and a lot mm. of these great improvisers. Mm. And he just, he just 
rips stand-up comedy. He's talking about how dishonest it is, and it's very true. I mean, it is dishonest. Like, when you see Nate Bargatze or, you know, whatever big name, they're doing material that's been rehearsed so many times and worked through. Even Bill Burr, you know, up until you get to the level of someone like Dave Chappelle, who I think is just so good and has uh, embodied all of that you know, sort of fundamental stuff that he could just go out there and sort of fly by the seat of his pants. Until you're at that level, I don't think that anyone does material, at least not publicly, at least not on a special, you know, that hasn't been tested hundreds of times in clubs and venues all across, you know, on tour, just trying all that stuff out. Wow. It's so, it's, there's so much more to it than I, thought to be honest it just seems so incredibly hard to write for and get right yeah it is i mean it and is deliver because, it. absolutely and then you know there are little things too like if i can tell the same joke three or four times and sometimes it performs better than other times and it depends a lot on me like do i make a gesture when i say this joke right and sort of telegraph that this is a punchline or do i say it under my breath And, you know, the delivery varies. Sometimes I don't wait long enough to say the line. And so then people don't get, they don't catch on that it's a joke. It's very, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to it. Yeah. And I guess it just changes over time too. You mentioned John Belushi. I think he's, he was fantastic. And do you think he would still work now? Would it still work now? I think so. Yeah. But Mm. again, he would be doing sketch, uh, sketch and improv, which, I think what's cool about sketch is it it's sort of the middle of the road, right? Like, so stand-up is this very rehearsed punchline-involved thing. Improv is this very unrehearsed, raw energy kind of thing. And so what sketch does is it sort of combines those two elements, right? So what makes a sketch funny is that it's unusual, it's presented in a funny way that kind of gets you giggling, right? Like if you watch yeah. like Mr. Show or with Bob and David or, or they're masters of sketch comedy. But what's cool is uh, in, a, in an improv setting, a lot of times if you try to reach for a joke or, or a punchline, then you're going to sort of suck all the energy out of the scene. Uh, and Del Close is the guy who wrote, wrote that book, by the way. Uh, okay. And that's what he says in Truth and Comedy. And whereas stand-up's the complete opposite. So sketch sort of bridges the gap because you want to set up this these interesting, strange decisions in the sketch, but you can also have punchlines within the sketch. So it kind of bridges the gap. And that's why something like Saturday Night Live, I think John Belushi, yes, very much would be. And if you look at like the National Lampoon, which is where oh, yeah. Saturday Night Live's you know, performers came from initially, then what they're doing is they're doing they're doing improv and then they're and then they're writing that into a sketch and refining it and then doing it again and then refining it and doing it again. So it starts off as this sort of amalgamous, just fun, creative, playful sort of thing. And then they're like, okay, that's a good idea. That's really funny. Um, You know, this isn't, you know, this, this apartment particularly comes with an orphan in it, you know, or whatever silly, absurd premise, right? So you take this silly, absurd premise and then you add punchlines to that. And that's kind of what sketches sort of a marriage of, those two uh, different forms of comedy. Yeah, I have so much respect for comedy writers. After just speaking to you on these first few questions, uh, <laughs> so complex, so complex. Well, I think that um, a lot of comedic, comedic writers get to write their own ticket. For instance, uh, Russian Doll, that web series that's on Netflix, 
Amy Poehler was one of the writers. And so she has an extensive background in, in writing comedy, you know, if you know, Parks and Recreation, some of those, you know, which are based on British, <laughs> British comedies, truly like The Office. But, you know, she did that and she's done a lot of improv and stuff like that. But if you can write comedy, I think that drama is yeah. pretty, pretty straightforward, I guess, right? Yeah. Because you don't feel that pressure. <laughs> <laughs> have something to say oh my gosh yeah absolutely just did to touch on um writing for radio and tv and what the key difference is for you how sure. do, what would you interpret as the key differences there the obvious differences are the audience the medium that you're sort of interacting with the audience yeah absolutely um for radio you have to keep in mind that the audience can't see what's happening so you lose elements, uh, which in a way is kind of nice because yeah. you're not tied to certain things. You don't have to get it right. And even and if we're in a sketch recording it radio wise, then we can we can laugh and I can just cut that out and post. I can just edit it. I can edit the laugh out. And I, that's sometimes how I know we have the purest take. It's like, oh, this was a great delivery of this. And we all cracked up. I've ruined so many takes. Like, <laughs> I, I laugh a lot. I, I, I love to. <laughs> it's this very special thing to me. It's very sacred to me to laugh. It's like a sneeze to me. Yeah. It's like I lose my ego when I laugh. We go somewhere else. It's, yes, you know, it's, so it's, true. it's an escape, you yeah. know? And so it is very sacred to me in that way. And I've even written a lot of jokes about that. But so in radio, just keeping in mind that you have to set the scene up in a way that's obvious so that the audience can visualize where these characters are. If they're in a doctor's office or, yeah. uh, or wherever, you know, a, a junkyard and you have to have the sound effects, the audio to match their location. And you have to do that in video too. But so it's, so it's cool in that way, but you do lose a lot of comedic elements. All the physicality has gone. Yeah. Like you, any gesture, any movement, that would ordinarily be funny. Like, you know, obviously Mr. Bean's radio show, right? <laughs> like yes. Be silence. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it wouldn't work. So, you know, so we have to sort of use different uh, elements and ideas and, and tropes, etc., to to keep the audience aware of where we are, what's happening in the scene, with background noises, with, you know, maybe even overt explanations about where we're at in the scene. You know, like there has to be like we're going into a um, we're going into a um, um, a store. Then we need to have you know like a, a Walmart or a grocery store or something. Then we have to have that sound where the door slides open because it's an electronic door. Yeah. You know, and things like that. Footsteps as well. You know, which all of those elements you have to be sure of that you have in video, but it's more crucial in radio because the audience has to use their imagination. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, we've spoken about stand-up. Um, so I'm going to skip over to my next question, which is something that really interests me, is how comedy writers and performers seem to be able to portray very dark characters or write dark drama. And I would give Jim Carrey as my most obvious example of a performer who started in comedy and has gone quite dark. Yeah, I think there's a bigger payoff the darker you go. You have to be careful because there's a line there. But Ricky Gervais's most most newest series where yeah, his brilliant. wife just died of cancer brilliant is a good series. example yeah. of that. And 
you know, here's so here's how I think of it. I think drama is you trip over a branch, you fall, and you break your arm in the park. Comedy is you trip over a branch, you fall and break your arm, and then a limb from the tree falls and breaks your other arm. Yeah. Comedy is darker than drama. It's more absurd, and it's more, I don't know, it's more fierce. It's more brutal. <laughs> it is, it's isn't it? It's, it is. Yeah. It is. I'm thinking of Cable Guy. Do you remember the, the movie Cable oh Guy? Oh, God. That's the creepiest movie. Yeah, it was the first that. time I'd seen Jim Carrey play something like that. And I was like, oh God, he's so good at that character. But this, to me, it's because he's normally a comic actor. But I, I always seem to think that with comic actors. They're so good at dark characters. They really are. And you'll notice, too, that a lot of comedic actors become really good actors, but they don't do it the traditional way that most actors do. And yeah. a lot of comics have touched on this, but uh, I'll repeat it just for the sake of this interview. It's like comics learn who they are. And that's why I have so much respect for comics in yeah. my whole life. Like I've grown up on George Carlin and Bill Hicks and Richard Pryor, probably my oh, three yeah. most influential. So honest. Uh, but like comics learn who they are. And so it's easier, I think in that way for them to become an actor while actors are always someone else. So if you start with this self-awareness, then I think it's a little bit easier to put yourself in that character's shoes. You're still being yourself, right? Like if you watch uh, Will Ferrell, I can't remember the name of the, the one with the watch, uh, the movie with the watch where he's like an IRS agent or, Anyway, it, it was it was a really it was a it was a it was a dramatic role for him, and he did an excellent job with it. Um, and, and so a lot you'll see that with a lot of comic actors because they know how to put their own persona in that character's situation, yeah. right? So they're still being themselves. He is still Will Ferrell as whoever that person is, and you can tell. But you know that's what gives them a little bit of an edge, and then also. You know, when I read a lot of the stand-up comic, comedy books, it's like a lot of writers become stand-ups just to prove that, hey, look, I understand how story works, right? Like even in five minutes, I start out with one topic and I go all the way to this topic and that topic. And then, boom, my grand finale is to bring this idea together. So yeah. I've proven to you in five minutes that I understand performance. I also understand story arc and, and how to write. So yeah. as far as like a lot of writers get jobs just because... They, under, they know they can prove it with stand-up. Stand-up proves it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. This leads me on to the best subject that comedy is the best genre for that you um, can think of or that you have seen. Me personally, I think, you know, and this is something that I talked with Kelly Patronus and Jake Ward a lot about, and I think we all agree that Whatever's true for you is the best thing. The audience knows it could be a fake. It's like if you do some ridiculous joke that, and of course you can be absurd with punchline, but if your premise isn't steeped in truth, if it's not true for you, then I don't think that the audience is going to invest in you. And that comes yeah. from some experience. I don't have extensive experience, but I don't really, even, even if that weren't true, I don't care because I have no interest in presenting something to an audience that I don't personally believe in. It yeah. makes it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of their time. Yeah. And I've honestly ruined my own sets by sitting through a lot of comics before me. You know, if I'm like the 25th person on the open mic or something, and I just like see the most conventional stand up 
performance time and time and time and time again. It just literally makes me want to go home and see how many guns I can fit in my mouth. Because <laughs> I just, I, I, I get, I get irritated. I get upset yeah. because I want uh-huh. you to say something. Talk about smoking dope with your kid. Talk about uh, uh, something, uh, an issue that you had at work. Talk about something real. Talk about something that you believe in. Tell me what your philosophy is. Tell me the wildest thought that is raced through your mind. Tell me about the time you thought about pushing somebody off a bridge. Of course you didn't do it, but why did you even think that? Tell me about something that I, you know, that is going to be different. I just, I I want something refreshing. I want something unique and I want something that's true for you. Uh, Otherwise I'm just, I'm just disinterested and it's just, it's just the run of the mill. It's just more of the same convention. Cool. Touching on American and British comedy styles, there there are quite a few differences, I would say, in them. Um, do you think they translate well overseas? I think it depends on the audience. I think so. I like British humor. But, you know, I would say that <laughs> as a rule, an American audience is definitely a little bit more dumbed down. They would, in general, not do as well with intellectual humor, in my opinion. It's where Uh, the joke is explained, isn't it? The joke is explained. I've noticed that a lot in the American writing, the comedy writing. That's exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I I feel, do you still think there's that difference now? Is there still the explanation behind um, jokes? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that with what's going on now, too, politically between the countries, like not to bring, you know, any anything weird in, but yeah. like, you know, in uh, George Orwell's 1984 song about uh, Oceania, I think that's starting to happen yes. between Great Britain and the U.S. It's like Absolutely. Brexit and all that. So I think yeah. that we are starting to form a little bit of a symbiosis between our cultures. I have a friend who lives out there in the U.K., and I think she would agree with that statement. Yeah. That there's going to be a lot of, we're going to be eating a lot of the same foods and things like that as the years come up and, and things like that. So, you know, not to get political at all, I, I don't mean to, but I just think that we're going to start to share more in common. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think audiences are going to be, become very similar and we won't have that differentiation going forwards. We've touched on your favourite comedy writers and actors, I would say. Uh, mine would be the Python gang. I'm a very big Python fan. Um, yes. I've liked them for so long. I just adore them. Uh, and I would say that their comedy hasn't aged, really. You could still watch it now or audiences could watch it now. Maybe wrong, but I'm biased. And it's actually a question that I wrote after I saw the Stan and uh, Laurel and Hardy film. Uh, the recent one with Steve Coogan in, right? I just found it heartbreaking that comedians like Laurel and Hardy had to tour the UK and really struggle to find an audience. So I was just thinking, is comedy styles, can they age? Yeah, very much so. I even heard, you know, and I hear a lot here. So I live in a small town. It's a college town. It's very progressive. And so I hear a lot of people, you know, especially with this uh, new, more PC sort of culture that we have, talk about particular comics and how their comedy didn't age because of certain words they used in 1990, which were common words and things like that. So yeah, I think the, the culturally it's really hard to write comedy that doesn't age because even if it's a great joke, like I could write a great joke about, let's say like a current event. Well, in two weeks, 
everybody's going to forget about that joke. Yeah. And so I have to come up with something new. But Python is an excellent example of comedy that is so, I guess, meta, for lack of a better word, because it's beyond the uh, the parody. It breaks parody. Yeah. And, and it goes beyond that. And so, like, the Ministry of Silly Walks, for instance, is probably my favorite Python sketch. And it's it's so absurd. And the point that it makes is always going to be true as long as we have systems of control. Always, you know, at least I think that's what they're trying to say with it. But I might, you know, that's yeah. just my opinion. So I think that and, and for that, yes. And then there are a lot of the older, more offensive comedy from the 70s. The millennials don't like it. It hurts their spirit. They don't they don't uh, vibe well with it. Whereas uh, I have a friend named Stuart Huff who lives here, but he's always on the road. He's a road comic. He's hilarious. I highly, 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 highly recommend checking into Stuart Huff. He has an hour on YouTube. Okay. Um, he teaches while he, while he, uh, makes you laugh the whole time. He's excellent. But like I had a chance to speak with him and he said that when he first came up in comedy, it was literally about how hard can you push? How offensive can you be? And now we're experiencing the other side of that, the pendulum swamp, yeah. so to speak. So now, you know, people are a little bit more defensive and a little bit more or a lot more even, depending on who you ask, depending on what your audience is, a little, a lot more sensitive about the material that they can laugh at. At the same time, I would say there are people who are still testing this. Like, for instance, Andrew Schultz. Andrew Schultz uh, was a comic, uh, has been a comic for a long time, still is, of course. But he is a, is a New York guy and tried to get a bunch of specials and nobody would do it because his offensive, uh, his, his, his comedy is a little bit offensive. It hits, it's, it's on a guttural level, meaning that it's a designed to bypass whatever your beliefs are mm. and hit you immediately in the gut and make yeah. you laugh. Yeah. And I think, I think he's very brilliant at that. And another thing that he's done to defy convention is he was like, okay, cool. Nobody's going to sign off on my special. I'm just going to chop it up and I'm going to put it on YouTube. So what he did was he took uh, one hour of material and he chopped it up into uh, four 15 minute segments and put that on YouTube and put a bunch of smaller clips on. And what he found was, was that a lot of people were intimidated to watch an entire hour of someone's comedy, especially if they had never heard of that comic. Whereas when people discovered his channel in the smaller clips, four or five minutes, you know, 15 minutes, that what would happen was they would probably intend to watch a couple of clips, but wind up watching two or three hours worth of his standup because of our attention spans and things like that. Yeah. Now he's over 500,000 subscribers on YouTube. He's been on Joe Rogan's show and he's just, Incredible. you know, huge now. So I, I like his comedy a lot. And I think it's interesting what he's done because in the midst of the sort of PC stuff, he is able to, to defy it and, and still get away with it. Not Good. everybody can pull that off. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Do you know, you rarely see comedians like that. That's why I like Ricky Gervais because he yes. will push that. I, even I was shocked <laughs> in Afterlife, the language as well. And now there is that point that, well, you know, there's no kind of censorship now on that. But I think but I don't think that's such a bad thing, really, because it's still freedom of speech, right? So, and you can choose yeah. to watch it or not, right? Absolutely. And that is one thing that I do love about 
even these garbage open mics. I mean, they are they are awful. Uh, we'll go to these uh, mics in Atlanta, you know, at the top of a pizza joint on a roof, you know, where there's like 10 or 20 people maybe tops, and you'll see somebody just light into something. It doesn't even have to be funny, but they get up there and they're able to express themselves. And just the other day, there was a person that went up who I'm not sure what their gender was, uh, looked like a, they looked like a, a woman, but, um, or were dressed in a, in a female sort of attire. But, um, you know, I'll say she, just because I don't know, but, but she had a, a terrible stuttering problem and literally couldn't get any jokes out. But I almost teared up watching it in the audience because I was like, wow, like the amount of courage that that took. Yeah. And the fact that all of us here, even though we're, I don't know, a lot of the comics are really competitive and secretly hate each other and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of competition, even though we all suck, are still <laughs> sitting here and watching this person and giving them their time. You know, yeah. it's, it's, and, and, and they're, they're using it to the best of their ability. And I, I just think that's a very beautiful thing. I think yeah. freedom of expression, freedom of speech is something that is incredibly sacred. And comedy might be the last frontier for freedom of speech. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even in, in ancient times, right? Like only the jester could make fun of a king. So, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. And yeah. I think it, if you have a message that's important, if you can shroud it in comedy, then you can generally speaking, not always, but get away with it. And <laughs> that may change more and more as we head into the future. But that's I think such that's a good interesting point. to keep in mind. Absolutely. So, that's absolutely a brilliant point. Just touching on here about the t TV stations here will be releasing their Christmas schedules of, you know, what they've got coming up, what specials. And I was so disappointed to see two of my favourite sitcoms that were great years ago. Are oh, they suddenly now appearing this Christmas, Blackadder Black and Gavin and Stacey, both really well written and really well performed at that time. And I just feel that they're this is such lazy broadcasting, writing and broadcasting and commissioning. Yeah, oh, so disappointed. More, yeah, more conventional, mm. more conventional, more conventional. It's it's almost to the point here in America where it's like, it used to be the dream if you were a comic to get your own sitcom. But those sitcoms have become so watered down that I really think that a lot of the comics are like, okay, great. This is just a payday for me. I'm right. just going to rent myself out yeah. to this be whatever character these producers want and just, you know, and just go along with it. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something interesting that's happened in LA, which is kind of funny because LA is so, you know, historically progressive where the comedians themselves are at the forefront of the comedy movement. It's not the producers anymore. It used to be the producers there. And what's happened is with podcasting, with people like Joe Rogan and many others, they've been able to put like the cream rises to the top instead of a bunch of producers deciding what is funny based on metrics and, you know, the audience retention rate and all of these analytics. Instead, it's what's funny. It's and goes to the top. And that, that should be the way that it is, but it hasn't historically been that way. But, I think that right now we're in a really interesting, cool place. I was able to be in LA and go to the comedy store and uh, see a lot of great comics. And they are, they are deciding who's funny 
um, you know, not some person from on high. Right. Uh, that's not going to be translated to the mainstream media. That is uh, an absolute internet sort of sensation. That's really interesting. I I think for me, and I'm I guess I'm looking at this as a writer now, specifically with Blackadder, it had such a touching last final scene of a poppy field where the troops were going over in World War One, and it was just wonderful. It was like the most wonderful ending of any series ever, and now I feel that's going to be a bit spoiled now because there's going to be another one that's not going to be so good that's the last Blackadder and I don't know I just feel like it's a bit of a cop-out to be honest I was not very impressed as you can <laughs> as yeah, you can guess and that's fair you know we all have different and yeah. I might disagree with you so yeah absolutely like, uh, yeah but I I agree with you I like the I like the rawness I like the I like the message within the the comedy itself, you know, that's the vehicle for yeah. the message. I think, I think the message should go sort of first and, yeah. and, you know, and that's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think that the message should be what is packaged in comedy and not the, cause I've gotten off where I'm like, well, I'm just going to write about porta potties and, you know, EDM and all these kind of things at times. And, and I, there's nothing wrong with just being funny and silly. There's a good thing. But if I'm going to go on stage and talk to people that I want to, you know, without sounding too cheesy, right? Like bear, bear my soul. I want to say what I really think and feel. And I want to, I want to touch people and I want to see them because if you're laughing, then, you know, and Andrew Schultz is a great example of this. It proves that, you know, that you can kind of seed people with ideas if, when they're in that kind of state, right? Yeah. It's hard to have an argument with someone uh, and win. In fact, I, I would, my, I might say that that's impossible. But if you can make someone laugh, then they may actually, they may actually, uh, like, uh, just for a minute, for a second, consider your perspective. Yeah, cool. Okay, my last question is, do you have the pressure to always be the funny guy? In my circle of friends, I really don't, because we just, uh, we just bullshit, and we're all funny. And <laughs> that's something that, that's something that, in my entire life, even when I've gone through darker times, I just appreciate people who can just, you know, just pass the ball around and just be silly together in a fun, inclusive, you know, playful way. And that is something that I hold very dear. And if somebody can't do that, then I honestly, I just don't have the patience to be around them. Yeah. Um, I just can't. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not anything personal. But if we can't riff together, yeah. then we're not going to get on very well. It just it just doesn't work. There's just no chemistry there, you know. So uh, I really value the ability to make make anything that's especially serious into something funny or absurd, so that we can all have a laugh at it. It's it's one of our ways that we can deal with just the heinous. Uh, realities that face yeah. us in the world from time to time. You know, there's yeah. some dark stuff out there. And if, and if you can't laugh at it, then sometimes it will have power over you and, and you won't be at the cause anymore. You'll be at the effect of this, you know, what we call in transurfing the pendulum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just to explain to some of the listeners here that reality transurfing is just such a, an immensely fantastic book and it's just a different perspective on how to guide your life or step into a new one, I would guess. You explain it so much better than I do. I think that's a perfect synopsis of it. Do you? 
Yeah. I learned something. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's very simple and straightforward. And see, reality transurfing, I think, and I was talking to Renee about this yesterday, is something that you can take basic principles of and you can see immediate results. Or you can go very deep and see all of these nuances that the dean explains in the book. So it's not something that you have, you don't have to join a cult. You know what I mean? I, I often joke with my friends about, like Kelly came by the other day and I'm recording a podcast. He's like, uh, was that your cult leader? So, you know, so that's fun and funny. And, and I think that reality transurfing is a lot different. Uh, it sets itself apart from new age. It sets itself yeah. apart from the sort of woo woo, like namaste, like, you know, sort of, you know, love and light kind of like mm. fake hokey, you know, stuff that's out there. It's not that way at all. It's, it's, it's more practical. We're trying to make it even more practical because it is a lot of theory in the book. We're trying to make it even more practical on Transurfing TV. Yeah. A lot of the contributors there and, um, and package some, some other ideas and, and techniques, I guess. That's really cool. Well, I will definitely be tuning in. And awesome. I just thank wanted you. to thank you so much for for this talk about comedy writing. It's just an area I don't know anything about, to be honest. I enjoy comedy, obviously, but I've never known about how to create it or, you know, it's so complex. It's absolutely so complex. It really is. And if you are looking to attain enlightenment, I highly recommend sitting down at a desk and trying to write a few jokes. Uh, Your mind will go (laughs) blank. I can't do that. I'll be here forever. (laughs) I'll be here forever. It really is hard, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reward in it if you can do it. And there's a, and really a big plus for me was like, you know, and a lot of reason why I'm on the reality transurfing train is because I want to know who I am. Right. And so I think that with comedy, that's an excellent way to do it. Whether you're talking about personal gross things that have happened to you like Amy Schumer or you're purely observational like Jerry Seinfeld, Mm. you have to take and you have to dig. And you have to go deep. Whatever it is that you're exploring, if it's on the outside or the inside, you have to follow that idea all the way to its end. Yeah. And there's no way you can not do that. That's how you make something funny and relatable to an audience. Thank you so much. It's been so good talking to you. My pleasure.